This podcast was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. get tired of being Beatles. Uh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, no, 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 that John finally got just after that and we were both of the do what you wanted to do what you wanted to do. If you think it was good, keep it if you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. The podcast website is romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y cast, romicast.com. If you go there, you can find out more information about me, and you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in the series. And also, if you see fit, you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial-free. I am trying to make a living as a content creator in a world that uh, doesn't like to pay for content so much. So any donation is much appreciated and goes towards the show. Just click on the donate button on the website. And also, if you don't already, please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. That kind of thing really does help. And thank you in advance for that. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle the underscore RomyCast. That is the underscore RomyCast. There's also a Facebook group page that is gaining a bit of momentum. If you'd like to join, do a search on Facebook for The Walrus Was Paul Podcast ask to join and I'll sort that out for you. Uh, what do we do? We, we chat about the podcast. I post some extra things on there and just generally interact with other Facebook group members. So if you'd like to join, please do. My guest today is Tyler Stewart. What an honor. The heartbeat, or most certainly the backbeat, of one of the most successful Canadian bands ever, the Bare Naked Ladies. Tyler has been with the band since 1990. The group started off, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, as an indie band, mainly working in the Toronto area uh, in the late 80s and then into the early 90s. That's when I became familiar with them. Toronto was my stomping ground back then, still is, as a matter of fact. Uh, They busked a song that they wrote called Be My Yoko Ono in front of a camera in a glorified phone booth for a TV show called Speaker's Corner, and that really got them on the map. It was a funny song. The title is funny, Be My Yoko Ono. That got loads of local attention. When they couldn't get a record deal, they put out their own cassette. 
They eventually sold over 100,000 copies of that cassette as an independent. Over the last 30 years, they've sold millions of records, toured the world, written and performed the title song for the hit TV series Big Bang Theory, and through it all, back there, keeping the beat. Ringo-like, all-around nice guy, a hell of a drummer, a massive hockey fan, and a huge Beatles fan, Tyler Stewart. You can find out what Tyler and the Bare Naked Ladies are up to at their website, barenakedladies.com. They actually have tour dates scheduled for both North America and the UK for 2021. You can purchase tickets and get more info at their website. Fingers and toes crossed that all comes together. Man, it has been too long since we've been able to go and take part in live concerts. So go visit their website and check out their tour dates. Buy tickets. It's barenakedladies.com. If you want to follow Tyler on Twitter, you can find him under the handle Baldy67. Baldy67. I was going to go for that one, but he grabbed it before me. Baldy67. So, Tyler, fellow bald guy, or uh, not to offend anybody in this uh, politically correct world in which we live, follically challenged fellow guy. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the Beatles with me. My pleasure, Paul. Uh, so, let's get right into it now. Uh, before I talk about your start in the music world, Tell me about the music world's start in your life, i.e., what is your first memory of music? My first memory of music is dancing with my parents. Um, My parents are young parents. You know, my mom was 19 when she had me and uh, was really into, uh, um, like, soul music and Motown and um, all that kind of stuff. you know, late sixties, uh, Motown stacks, those kinds of records. And, uh, so she, there was always music on and, uh, you know, dance. And then later on, you know, my father, my stepfather and, uh, we're both also into music. So, um, you know, around our house, there was always music on. So to me, it's, it's dancing, dancing early in my life to, um, late sixties, you know, Motown or the Rolling Stones and the Who and Led Zeppelin that my dad was really into. I hear you still cut a pretty mean rug. That's the word out there. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> you, you know, sit, all those years sitting on the drum stool, Paul, and making people dance. I think has removed all of my dancing moves. <laughs> all right. So those are your early memories of music and dancing. What about your earliest memories of the Beatles? You know, being my age, uh, I'm 52. Um, the Beatles, you know, broke up shortly after I was born. But, you know, as you know, we're doing a podcast about the Beatles in 2020, Paul. <laughs> so their, their music lives on and on and on. What are you, the well so, that keeps on giving. Yes. Yes, definitely. It's a crazy well. And sometimes... If you're not careful, you can get trapped down that well. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, my first concrete or like really getting into it. Um, when the, in 1976, uh, Capitol Records put out a compilation called Rock and Roll Music and uh, was going to be pretty derided because 
It was kind of a cheap package and George Martin tried to, I, I found this out later that George Martin tried to do remixes or at least make it sound better than the people at Capitol wanted to. And uh, anyway, and they put it, it's a, when you look back, it's a confounding package because it has all this kind of 1950s memorabilia and like yes. Coca-Cola and cars, you know, 57 Chevys and stuff. So wait a minute. The Beatles are a 60s band. It's a weird looking cheesy cover that uh, apparently, you yeah. know, the, the Beatles at the time hated. But uh, w- we could do a whole podcast on what Capital North America did to the Beatles catalog in the early days. That's a. Uh, talk about second guessing, you know, genius. It's ridiculous. Why is there always some old white guy involved <laughs> in the creative decisions uh, of young geniuses. I don't understand it anyway, but that album, I, it was on, my parents got it for me, I think for my birthday or so. I was about, you know, nine years old at the time, probably played the heck out of that record and then discovered that my dad had a bunch of early vinyl of the Beatles as well. So a bunch of those capital, um, you know, what would you call them? Uh, travesties, uh, where they mixed up the, uh, you yeah. know, like beat things like Beatlemania and things like that. Oh yeah. But yeah, I remember probably age nine just being really into it. Yellow submarine obviously spoke to me. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, we went, kind of went from there. All right. Well, let's dive into it and I'll just give you a little bit of context. So Revolver was the seventh album recorded and released by the Beatles. It came after Rubber Soul and before Sgt. Peppers. Came out on the 5th of August, 1966 in the UK, 8th of August in the USA and Canada. It was the last original Beatles album to have the track content altered by Capital North America. So the running order was the same, except the North American version omitted I'm only sleeping on side one, and your bird can sing, and Dr. Robert on side two. They pulled all three of those songs and put them on the North American released yesterday and today, which came out in June. So it came out before Revolver. So the North American Revolver to our conversation, it was a ripoff, 11-track, 28-minute album. Still, the UK released nice 14-track album, which is the one we'll talk about today. was number one in the UK for seven weeks, 34 weeks in the charts. In the USA, it topped the Billboard charts for six weeks, 77 weeks on the chart in total. In Canada, it was the number one album on the Chum chart for eight weeks, a run of 15 weeks where uh, it was the Beatles, Yesterday and Today, and Revolver sort of bip-bopping around. As of 2017, as per Chartmasters, global physical sales of Revolver 12.45 million, ranking it fifth in the sales of the original catalog behind Rubber Soul and ahead of Let It Be. It has 99 million streams on Spotify. Uh, the most streamed song is Yellow Submarine, followed by Eleanor Rigby. So, to bring you up to date, Rubber Soul came out in December of 65, a crazy year in terms of work and output for the band. During 65, they produced two albums of new material, Help came out in August, and then Rubber Soul in December. They also recorded and released the number one single, We Can Work It Out, backed with Day Tripper. They shot a movie, 
They played 45 dates, many of which featured matinee and evening shows in the UK, Europe, USA. And then to close out 65, they did a nine-night tour of the UK with the show at the Capitol Cinema in Cardiff on December 12th being the final date of their last ever British tour. Guess how much they made, Tyler? What would you guess per show back then? Their last British tour. Uh, I'm going to say probably... You know, what, $5,000 a show, maybe? 1,000 pounds per night for those shows. 1,000. So about 2,000 Canadian a night. Yeah, yeah, give or take. First time they'd ever earned that much for a single show in their home country. So we turned the page uh, into 66, and after that British tour at the end of 65, they took three months off. It was the longest period of time the four had had off since 1962. Although the nightmare of the 66 tours was still to come later that year, there was already talk amongst the group near the end of 65. They'd had enough of the touring grind. Uh, You would know all about that. And encouraged by their work on Rubber Soul, their new home was going to be in the studio. So during the three months off, George Harrison gets married to Patty Boyd. They take holidays. John and Ringo visit Trinidad. McCartney and Jane Asher holiday in Switzerland. A lot of hanging out in London, soaking up the cool culture there. John Lennon got into LSD. Uh, He used as his guide a book by the renegade Harvard psychologists Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Ralph Metzner called The Psychedelic Experience, and we'll come to that later. It was a manual to mind expansion, and it was Lennon's intention, taking LSD for the third time in his life, to really take a a serious voyage of self-discovery. So it is in that context that the Beatles walk into EMI Studios on the 6th of April, 1966 to start work on what was to become Revolver. The first song they started to work on was the acid-drenched Tomorrow Never Knows. That was song number one. The tape box shows the working title of the song was Mark One. So we'll come to that song later, but when I tell you that, Tyler, what do you think of the fact that the first track they started to work on was the monumental Tomorrow Never Knows? How does that resonate? Wow, that's how that resonates. I mean, first of all, Paul, I'm exhausted listening to you recap what those guys did, how much work, how hard those young men worked. That is astounding to me because I've been in a band for 30 years. I know what touring's like. I remember our first major year of touring in Bare Naked Ladies in 92 and 93. You know, we did something like 240 shows in 365 days. And I thought that was absolutely, I thought that's the way it was going to be forever, but thank God it wasn't. But it's amazing how exhausting touring can be because you're always on the move. Okay. Now these guys at the same time, they recorded two albums and made a movie while they were touring. And you're, Back then, they couldn't go anywhere without being chased by screaming fans. And like the sheer exhaustion of all of that activity, I just can't believe that they, and then they took three months off. Think about how long three months is. I mean, we've been in this COVID dilemma for eight months, right? Yep. It seems like 10 years. Now, the thing is, three months goes by so fast. That's a summer for people or whatever. It's no time. And that's the most time they've taken off in, you know, five or six years. And 
to come out of that time off and go back into the studio and start with the most experimental song ever recorded. Like what? This, this is the thing with the Beatles. You can't stop freaking out. You can't believe it. Like what? How in the world did all this go down? And, you know, and then there's John, you know, deciding to try LSD. I'm totally exhausted. And I've been traveling for approximately six years straight. Never taken any time off. And I'm going to try some acid. That'll help. Um, talk about like, you know, anyway, it, it's such an incredible period of time. And to come out of the gate with Tomorrow Never Knows, talk about setting um, a precedent or, you know, creating a template through which all of your future songs could travel. Mm -hmm. You know what's neat is when you look at, not for every album, but many of them, when you look at the first track they worked on for that particular album and how it really, you know, the, the, there's a saying, uh, start as you mean to continue. Uh, and so you look at Revolver and the first track they worked on was Tomorrow Never Knows, right? Lots of looping, lots of avant-garde, you know, wild stuff at the time. And there's that, that was sort of the, the timber of the album. Pepper, the first track they worked on, although it didn't end up in the album, but it was Strawberry Fields Forever. You know, which you can yeah. see how that set the tone. Abbey Road, first song they worked on was I Want You, She's So Heavy. Uh, and, and then the White Album, the first song they worked on was uh, Revolution One, so the slower version of that song. Uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting. when you, Now, do you recall what first tracks you worked on for some of the ladies' albums? I mean, let's start with Maroon. A great album released 20 years ago, million seller in the USA. Do you remember starting recording what the first track was? Yes. Uh, it's a song called Too Little Too Late. Uh, and it's a it's a straight ahead rocker, and I remember, you know, um, you know, it's a Stephen Stephen Page sang the song, and I remember working with Don Was and Jim Scott, and we had to try to stop this the song from taking off into the stratosphere. Now, when you're in the studio, often you play to a click track, which is essentially a metronome, so everybody stays in time. Um, the Beatles, I don't think, did that very much, except when they were working with loops. You know, uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, actually, might be the first time, you know, Ringo had to really, like, stay in time with a bunch of all kinds of weird stuff. But, um, you know, click tracks are definitely a feature of modern recording mm -hmm. um, from the 70s till now. And that's how you get that steady meter. Uh, sorry, so did that track set the tone for the album? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... What happened was we were trying to, here's what we tried to do. We tried to capture the energy without speeding up, you know, and that's really hard for bands to do. So the click track angle. So this song, we let, we turned it off and we let the song creep up because the energy was ramping and it was such a great live performance. Now, uh, what that did was put us in the mindset of we need to keep this incredible recorded energy. We need to be able to, but we also have to work within the, you know, the confines of the studio. We need to make sure every song doesn't take off into the stratosphere. Uh, and we need, but we need to keep that energy. So yes, it did set the tone by this energetic, uh, yet restrained uh, uh, 
performance. And I'll just pull another one out of the air. Uh, same. How about Fake Nudes, the 2017 album? First track on that, did it set the tone too? First track we recorded on that album was was a song called Canada Dry, which is um, a sort of a more contemplative, laid back song. And um, I don't think that it, it set the tone in terms of like, this is a great song. Let's really dig into this, to the lyrics here of this song and let's feel it. So I think in, in, it could have set the tone, although the rest of the album I think is more experimental. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes bands, you mentioned that, on, I, have, well, I wasn't aware that the Beatles started off with such experimental tracks on those three albums that you, that you mentioned or four albums. Um, sometimes I think a band will start with what's familiar and, and get one down and okay, we're rolling. Now we got our studio legs together again after being on the road or being, having time off. But the Beatles, I love that adventurousness to start with the new vibe, like right away, like, okay, here we go. We're, we're pushing the boundaries all the time. Yeah, I, I think, and I, I was never aware of the pattern until I started, you know, I guess I had my nerd hat on and I started, well, looking at it and went, yeah, that's that's kind of a pattern on, especially yeah. their later albums where they came in and it was like, oh, okay, so they kind of knew what they were doing. <laughs> so, let's, yeah. uh, so let's start, let's get to Revolver and we're going to do the, uh, what is now the standard version, so the, what would have been the British version at the time, so 14 tracks. I'm going to go old school take the vinyl out of the jacket put it on the turntable and side one track one is Taxman the first and only time that a UK Beatles record opened with a George Harrison song one two three four <laughs> one two let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man yeah. Awesome, so great What a great groove on that song um, Even that count in One, two You know, like It's like we're in the studio now And we're anything goes And uh, yeah, like so, kind of a A very danceable song, right? Really groovy song Um I love that George got to start the record off like that. You know, I'm in a band too with, you know, four songwriters and three, really three songwriters and a drummer who occasionally contributes a line or two. Um, But, uh, you know, three distinct singing voices. And one of the things we try to do in our records is ensure that we, you know, we spread the wealth that everyone gets to sing. Or you think of a band like Sloan in Canada, you know, um, very much the same thing. Everybody gets to contribute. Having George start with Taxman is a statement. It's like, okay, we, we are moving in a new direction here. And how about this incredibly groovy tune, which I found out Paul plays the guitar solo. Yes. And it's a killer solo. Yeah, I mean, McCar- it's a Harrison track, but McCartney uh, plays the killer solo on his Epiphone Casino, I believe it is. And then 
a baseline that is being used by I don't know how many van. I don't know, uh, the jam uh, basically lifted yeah. the baseline out and used it in start. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a Harrison song, but it's a brilliant showcase of Paul McCartney. Well, absolutely. If you're if you're teaching a music class, uh, uh, and today's lesson is on the Hofner bass and the innovation <laughs> of the lightweight Hofner bass. Paul McCartney played one, and you press play on tack. Yeah. Any questions? No. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> that count in you talked about, it's an interesting thing. It's a very speeded, so it's a slowed down George Harrison. It was edited onto the final take. And you can hear McCartney in the in the background giving the proper, you know, one, two, three, four, count in. Um, and it, it, here's, a, here's a, again, a nerdy thing, but you think three years earlier, they opened their first ever album, Please Please Me, with McCartney's one, two, three, four, very spirited live count-in. Here we are three years later, they open it with a count-in, and it's a much more gritty, you know, one, two, three, you know, that that Harrison one. And, and I wonder if it was, you know, if it was a bit of a piss take or a statement where they were saying, we've changed, guys. We've changed a little bit. Yeah, well, if you if you look at it from a uh, you know they're they're three whole months off, you know maybe wow we've slowed down. <laughs> maybe the, you know maybe it's a joke. They are such we're such pop culture jokesters, and I, I love that. I mean, obviously, my band is known for our, our sense of humor, and we try to you know put little cues in there as well. But I think you know the Beatles on that song. You know, just what a great flashing neon sign that says, we are the guys you love, but we're going in a different direction. Yep. Uh, in 87, Harrison said, I was pleased to have Paul play that bit on Taxman. If you notice, he did like a little Indian bit in it for me with the drone. Uh, Ian McDonald, Beatles scholar, praised McCartney's contributions to the song, saying his guitar solo was outstanding and his bass part was remarkable. And I, I mentioned the Jam's 1980 hit single. Are you a Jam guy, a Paul Weller guy at all? I like to jam. I'm more of a Paul Weller style council guy, oddly enough. But uh, you know, I, I like uh, I like to jam too. I, I remember hearing start, and uh, I mean, it starts with the you know boom, 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 and I went, oh, yeah. Even my young ears went, that sounds like Tax Man. <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, totally. So uh, let's go on to cut two and completely changing gears on the record. It was the tenth song that they started to work on. Uh, on the first day, April 28, 1966, the session involved George Martin on the floor of Studio 2 conducting four violins, two violas, and two cellos. I'm talking, of course, about Eleanor Rigby.
53-year-old man, I'm not aging myself, the two-year-old man says, wow, what an amazing song. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that before. Okay, Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby. Wow. Okay, so obviously, if anybody doesn't understand the phrase, the fifth Beatle, when people refer to George Martin, listen to that song, because the string arrangement is absolutely beautiful and is a perfect setting for a rather sad song. Um, my personal connection to this song is I, I got the single for Yellow Submarine, which the B-side was Eleanor Rigby. And we got it at a record store in Newmarket, Ontario. The guy had to order it in. Um, this was after I got my, you know, Beatles rock and roll music compilation in 1976. Um, I love the song Yellow Submarine. So you get the single, the single and it's backed B-side, good old days, with Eleanor Rigby. So as a nine-year-old, I'm listening to this song and freaking out about the imagery. It's so dark. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window Wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door Who is it for? You know, kids can get in touch with sadness pretty easily. It's not necessarily something we always ascribe to children, but I think kids really feel. And they really feel, you know, when things are sad or scary or happy. You know, emotions on 10. Um, and this song back then affected me and it, it still does. It's, it, you know, you think, you think of spinsters or, or lonely people, or even, even a, a clergyman who's, who's lonely because nobody shows up because, you know, the church is over. Um, interest, like what a great song. And how old is McCartney when he writes this? You know, yeah, early twenties, early, early mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you've got, you've got this incredible musician producer facilitating this great song with an incredible string arrangement and beautiful playing like yeah wow the the, the song I, I don't know tyler if there's a been a greater lyric in the beatles entire output than wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door uh that is just to me the epitome of Englishness, you know, never show too much despair or other emotion, stiff upper lip, keep it to yourself. I lived there for nine years and it really resonates with me. That And to have that kind of an eye on human behavior and culture at such a young age, to your point, it's I just find it remarkable. You know, I, I really do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And from, from a band synonymous with fun or lightweight or good times or, you know, making people laugh. Um, I think that's the two sides of the coin for any comedian or anyone with a, you know, a deeper sense of humor is that I think you have to understand the other side in order to make people laugh because, um, you know, sorrow or loneliness or despair, um, you know, when you feel those, it's, it's, it's real. And, 
to come out the other side of that, you know, either by laughing at it or, or explaining it, you know, explaining it like wearing a face that she keeps in the jar by the door. She goes out. I'm happy. I'm great. Comes home, takes off the face and is leading this life of quiet desperation. Yep. Um, to quote our other literary friends. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, it's, yeah, incredible, incredible uh, insight and, and an incredible song. The arrangement was influenced heavily by Bernard Herrmann's score for the movie Psycho, which was big at the time. Oh, the stabbing violins, you know, dun, dun. Dun, yeah. Dun. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he he was inspired by that. Interesting. Uh, some technical notes. Uh, speaking to George Martin, uh, he had engineer Jeff Emmerich mic the strings very very closely, which was not studio convention in 1966. And the string players apparently were quite uptight about it, where they were worried about their bows hitting the microphones. But Martin wanted to capture uh, particularly the growl of the low strings on the instruments. And he used all four tracks available. It was four-track recording then uh, when he recorded the strings to give it as spacious a sound as possible. And then he mixed them together onto one track and a reduction mix onto which they put vocals the following day. Uh, so you have the vocal from Paul. He double-tracked in places. And then some background vocals from John and George. I mean, just... But here's a great story. A month later, so they put this thing to bed. They thought the song was done. A month later, it occurred to Martin that he could reintroduce the song's refrain at the end of the song to create a counterpoint melody, vocal melody. A counterpoint, two different melodies playing at the same time, but that complement one another. Very common in classical music, not so much in pop. Uh, You would have heard it from the Beach Boys. You know, you think, help me, Rhonda. So on the 6th of June, after a full day of mixing, Martin and McCartney settle into Studio 3 at midnight. And McCartney adds his counter-melody vocal to the end of the song. All alone, people lonely, where do they all come from? All alone, people where do they all belong? So again, George Martin, that was his idea to have McCartney do it, which which leads me to ask you, who was the producer who was added the most to a track that you've worked on? Something like this one where you think the track is perfect, it's done, and then they come in and say, why don't you do that? And you go, oh my God. Well, uh, when we made our album Stunt um, in Austin, Texas, we started with Susan Rogers, great producer and now a musicologist doctor uh she worked with prince she worked with you know the odds uh, david byrne great engineer producer uh we did some bed tracks in austin and we thought we were done the album and then we went to do overdubs with another producer guy named david leonard who also worked with prince (laughs) and worked with on all kinds of 70s records, worked with Toto, worked with Amazing Guy. He took a song we had called When You Dream, a song that Steve Page wrote about his newborn son. And it was this very acoustic 6-8 feel kind of a song, almost a, almost a lullaby. And we replaced all of that with found sounds, um, 
We had an air conditioner in there. We uh, we played some children's instruments. You know the musical Apple? Remember those? You'd yeah, yeah. So Kevin added a bunch of xylophones and keyboards, and then we edited the guitar part and uh, and added some extra vocals. And that was David's suggestion: is to make it more dreamlike, make it sound like a dream. I think was his phrase. And uh, we didn't know that this song would go in that direction at all. But David had a great suggestion and with it. That is a that is a really cool example. Um, McCartney wrote the first verse of the song by himself, you know, one of those story songs that he came up with. The Beatles, as a bunch, finished the song in the music room of John Lennon's home in Kenwood. Uh, Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and their boyhood friend, a guy named Pete Shotton, all listened to McCartney play the song through, and then they chipped in with ideas. So it was Harrison came up with the, ah, look at all the lonely people. Uh, Starr, threw in the writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear and suggested making Father McCartney at the time when he was writing it darn the socks, which McCartney liked. Uh, and then it was Shotton who had the idea that uh, they all come together at the end, all of the characters in this play. Uh, now, which is an interesting thing. You, I guess you kind of walk in this world in that you have it with the Beatles, Lennon and McCartney, and this was mainly McCartney's song. Clearly, the other guys all chipped in, but the writing credit went to Lennon and McCartney. Does that happen with the ladies too? Like, do you all sit around and collaborate, or does the songwriter walk in and say, "Here it is," and you go, "Okay"? Well, in 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 the ladies, we've you know we had a pretty storied writing partnership between Ed and Stephen, and then when Stephen left the band. Um, you know, Ed certainly continued to write on his own, and he's also written with various partners, including Kevin Hearn from our band. Um, uh, but I think in our in our group now, the writer tends to bring the song to the band, demos the song, and then brings it to the band, and we add our parts, or sometimes we take it in a completely different direction. Um, but in, in terms of lyrics, I mean, usually they're pretty carved in stone. Um, you know, suggestions here and there. I find that the collaboration process in terms of like each song is certainly way more of a uh, organic thing. You know, people give and take, people make suggestions, people play a certain, Some sometimes people will play something and all of a sudden the song heads in that direction. Um, I love that that creative process that, um, you know, the bringing the songs together and, and seeing where we can go with them. Um, but largely uh, these days in Bare Naked Ladies, it, it's a pretty formed idea when it comes to the group and then we embellish from there. So uh, two minutes and seven seconds of perfection, Eleanor Rigby, uh, could be a Harold Pinter play uh, in my oh, mind. Such is such story. That's the beauty of, of, of songs, you know, well-written song. And you don't need a eight part Netflix miniseries. <laughs> Next cut. I'm only sleeping. The ninth song worked on during the revolver sessions uh, on April 27th, after an evening of mixing sessions in studio three, just before midnight, they started work just before midnight, fittingly on I'm only sleeping. Morning, lift my head. 
what sleep was, the Beatles. I mean, you start working at midnight. You know, obviously inspiration comes at night and stuff. But man, when we make an album, we start at 10 a.m. and we're all home by five, at, you know, picking kids up from hockey or whatever. Um, I think uh, that song, interesting, you know, given the context of so much work, such exhaustion, John kind of telling people, Dad, don't worry, I'm only sleeping. I may have been, you know, seeing technicolored music come out of my speakers and, uh, you know, creating psychedelic prints on my paint palette all night. But right now, I'm only sleeping. Don't worry. Don't call the ambulance. It's fine. I'll be, I'll wake up. Well, while not on tour, uh, apparently he was quite a lazy, lazy bugger. Uh, due to the lack of routine, which he had from touring, he would often spend his time sleeping, reading, writing, or watching TV, often under the influence of drugs uh, at that time. And he'd have to be woken up by McCartney for songwriting sessions. Uh, in a London Evening Standard article published on March 4th, 1966, it was the same article where he made the more popular than Jesus remark uh, with the journalist named Maureen Cleave. Uh, he said or she said he can sleep almost indefinitely is probably the laziest person in England physically lazy uh, and then Lennon said I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking but sex is the only thing I can be bothered with anymore so. <laughs> uh, um, I, I understand <laughs> I understand um, I think uh First of all, I'd like that journalist to have done anywhere near the work that the five years previous of touring, being the most pop, one of the most popular people in the world ever, and doing all and with, with that creative output. So Maureen Cleave, get off your sanctimonious high horse in 1966, <laughs> and you know, walk a mile in John's shoes. I can relate to that malaise of not being on tour or not even, you know, even right now, not touring or, you know, we finished our album. I'm just, I don't have anything to do in terms of the band world. You know, I'm. Do, do you like it or, or, or not? I hate it. <laughs> okay. I gotta be honest. I, I don't like it at all. I like, I love my home. I love being home. I love my family. You know, I've got three kids, but, I don't like having this job taken away from me like it was. Like just, bam, gone, no more shows. Because we play a lot of live shows and we're known as a live band. And the energy that I get from my guys and my band and the audience and the touring is something that is irreplaceable in my life. That it fuels the rest of my life. It feels like the rest of this doesn't make as much sense without it. And that's, I have a great life. I have a great home. I have a great family, but I am, there's a deficit there. And the scheduling as Lennon, uh, it was referred to in the Lennon article. Um, yeah. You know, you have somebody telling you where to go, where to be, what to do. And so you just have to do it. And then when somebody's not telling you that it's, it's amazing how not having a schedule is this liberation, this like, wow, I, I get to do nothing. And I look forward sometimes to not having an agenda, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> 
uh, uh, who, you know, she's a scheduled person. She routine, all that stuff. I'm less so unless I'm on the road. So I can relate to Lennon taking the time essentially for himself and, and nobody else. Uh, interesting. If you hear an early version of this song, you can hear it on the Anthology 2 CD. Uh, had like a cool sort of vibraphone intro to it, which they ended up not using. A couple of distinctive recording things. They worked hard to, really hard to obtain the timbers that they wanted using a lot of very speed, which this is where that really started to take off to alter frequencies. That The thin old man's voice that Lennon wanted for the singing was obtained by very speeding, which ended up with the track just a semitone below the original key, which was E minor. Please don't wake me, no, don't shake me. Uh, then you have Harrison's backwards guitar part. So he, he worked out this Indian-style guitar line in normal sequence. He had Martin transcribe it in reverse, and then he recorded it. And then it gets played back, dubbing the result on backwards to obtain that weird sound in the guitar you hear. Ringo's cymbals are all slowed. They're all very speeded. So my point being, up until this point, recorded songs didn't differ much from their live versions. However, during this period, cutting-edge songs like this one were almost impossible to replicate on stage. None of the songs from Revolver was ever played live by the Beatles, despite the fact they had a tour right shortly after the album. Um, other examples from that time, Summer in the City by The Love and Spoonful. You know, John Sebastian couldn't sing and play the piano part at the same time. So he had somebody else sing it in concert. The drummer. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Shapes of Things by the Yardbirds, another one they couldn't replicate live. Anything from Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. So studio versus concert. When you guys go in, because you mentioned you were a great live band, and I've seen you a bunch of times, and, and you wear that mantle proudly. You're a really fun, entertaining, energetic show. So when you go in, do you say, we've got to be able to play this live, and that's the thing we have to work towards? Or do you go, you know what, this is a studio song, and we might not be able to replicate it as well as we'd like live, but screw it, we're going to do it anyways because it's a good studio song. How do you approach those? Well, that's that's very on the money, Paul. Um, you know, in the, in the early days, I think much like the Beatles, we, um, we tried to make records that sounded like we, we sounded like. And, you know, there wasn't um, a ton of production, so to speak. There's, you know, standard studio overdubs and stuff. But, you know, you can cover a lot of that live. Uh, the nature of this band in that essentially we're an acoustic folk band, you know, that's how it started out. You know, we were played in living rooms and the instrumentation of upright bass guitar, like conga drums and vocals, um, you know, very much a replicable uh, on record and and live. So I think the spirit of the band is we can always play any song live and we're not afraid to also, but what we learned over the years is don't be afraid to add stuff or to be experimental. So nowadays, if we have a full production number, we may scale it down to play live, try to keep the energy, you know, make it more of a straight band performance, or we augment it with uh, loops and tracks which um, I saw an interview with George Harrison talking about this, where 
he said, you know, we could never play Tomorrow Never Knows because there wasn't synthesizers. <laughs> there wasn't sequencers and, and things like there was no, plus the PA system sucked so much they couldn't, you know. So nowadays, I think bands, a lot bands across the board embrace technology in order to pull it off or they, you know, just play the song. And I'm a big fan of just playing the song because if it's a good song, it'll translate no matter how many bells and whistles you bring on stage with you. Let's go to cut four. And speaking of the man you were just speaking of, George Harrison, love to you. To say the least, uh, it must have been, you got a little bit of, of sitar teaser on Rubber Soul, but then if you were buying this for the first time in 1966, this was the full-on Indian music experience. I wonder what it was like for somebody to listen to. To, uh, I think the sitar, maybe some people would be the first time they'd heard a sitar outside of a, you know, if you're in, in England, outside of an Indian restaurant, you know, uh, something like that. Um, really brave of George to incorporate those elements into it and also really brave of the rest of the band to embrace it. I really feel like he was this a cultural leader in terms of, hey, look, at there's a whole big world out there. You know, um, we may have uh, traveled through it while we were completely exhausted or slept across, you know, various countries. Uh, but here's here's an example of something that's turning me on. I think the spiritualism, um, you know, of Indian culture and obviously the instrumentation. And I, I, I love it. I love the fact that they could put this, you know, as track four on their new album. Once again, just proclaiming to the world that we are going in different directions and we're, we believe in ourselves. And I think that the track absolutely illustrates that. They, they started working on it uh, after Tomorrow Never Knows and Got You Get To End of My Life. So it was a third track that they came to. And you look at that period and the, you know, the, it made explicit the Indian influence that carries through the whole album. So you think of Tomorrow Never Knows, there's a drone in that, which of course is a huge part of Indian music. Got to Get You Into My Life has a drone to it. Uh, Paperback Writer, Rain, which were recorded around the same time, all incorporate those drone sounds and display that, uh, as one writer put it, limited harmonic movement that typifies the genre, that being Indian music. Really kind of far out. Uh, and, And I think... Uh, I'm a little bit older than you, but we're 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 kind of in the same snack bracket. And I, I always wonder, you know, we discovered the Beatles in hindsight, but I wonder what it would have been like. You know, you're thinking three years ago, it's yeah, 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 please, please me. Three years later, you hey, there's a new Beatles album out, and you run down and you pick up Revolver and you put it on, and the fourth cut, and you hear this, like you must have just even if you loved the Beatles, it must have been a what is this? Yeah, it was probably a shocker, definitely, especially for the more casual fan or the the fan of the top forty, which you know the Beatles were in the top forty. But um, yeah, I uh, bold move, and 
you know, kudos once again to George and the band for, for, for embracing it, putting it out there. And I think the fact that this album has those elements, but also has some of the classic Beatles songwriting and harmony. You mentioned got to get you into my life, for instance, you know, that, that is a great, I mean, that, that song, you know, Frank Sinatra could have sang that song. It, it has a, it's got the horn chart and everything. So there's elements of familiar and, you know, futuristic, unfamiliar and all wound together in, the, in this record. So once again, uh, another amazing element of it. Uh, I found, I dug out a, a kind of a cute story. Uh, the not, not many musicians received label credits for playing with the Beatles. It just wasn't what you did at the time. Uh, but a guy named Anil Bagwat plays the tabla, and he is credited on the album sleeve. And I found an interview with him, uh, and he said, uh, a chap called Angardi called me up. Uh, at the North London Asian Music Circle, so a bunch of Indian musicians. He called me up and asked me if I was free that evening to work with George. And I didn't know what he meant. He didn't say it was Harrison. It was only (laughs) after a Rolls Royce came to pick me up that I realized I'd be playing at a Beatles session, and I was very lucky. Uh, They put my name in the record sleeve. I'm really proud of that. They were the greatest ever, and my name was in the sleeve. One of the most exciting times of my life. You can imagine, eh? (laughs) like amazing a a tabla player we wouldn't get called to many (laughs) sessions so we go to the next cut and you talk about classic beautifully written songs uh it was one of the last songs they started working on for revolver uh the second last one they started work on uh here there and everywhere to lead a better life i need my Once again, an illustration of Paul McCartney and his genius, his ability to write a short pop song that encapsulates so much. Um, beautiful, lovely. Like that's that I think I think we just have to move on. It's just so beautiful <laughs> and lovely, and uh that's almost all I have to say about it. McCartney includes it amongst his personal favorites of all the songs that he's written. Uh, It's received similar praise from George Martin and John Lennon, uh, who loves the song. Um, Interesting history to it. So it was May 17th, 1966, the day after the new Beach Boys album had been released in America, Pet Sounds. McCartney and Lennon attended a private listening party at London's Waldorf Hotel. Deeply impressed by Wilson's songs, McCartney wrote Here, There, and Everywhere two weeks later at Lennon's house in Weybridge while waiting for Lennon to wake up. Oh. (laughs) Uh, He says, I sat out by the pool on one of the sun chairs with my guitar, started strumming in E, and soon I had a few chords, and I think by the time John had woken up, I'd pretty much written the song, so we took it indoors and finished it up. Took three days to record, with particular care taken on the three-part backing vocals arranged by George Martin.
So perhaps the most notable trait over a few incarnations of the ladies are your great vocal harmonies. If you've heard the band, that's what jumps out. Who arranges them and how does it come together? Do you do you start a song from the point of the vocal harmonies and work backwards? Fill me in on that. Uh, you know, there's three great singers and a guy who likes to sing in Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> I, I'm not going to identify any of any of the, those. Uh, you know, you are un, you um, are the, unkind to yourself, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the great thing is also having Jim Cregan and Kevin Hearn who are both, you know, former music students. Kevin Hearn was educated at the uh, Toronto St. Michael's Choir School. And Jim Cregan was a music major in university before he dropped out to become a rock star. Um, Both of the, and also Jim's mom was a choir conductor. So he, he lived through a lot of harmony practices and, uh, he was in choirs and also a barbershop quartet with his with his brother Andy. Um, so between Jim and um, Kevin, there's so much facility for understanding melody and harmony um, that they are very involved in our vocal arrangements. Also, Ed, Ed is just a good like you know he comes from a country and western background. You know his uh, his parents always had country music on. And that's one of the first places you can learn harmonies, you know, because there's so much of it. And his, apparently his mom and dad used to sit around the, the kitchen table and play guitar and sing. So there's this ethic in the band that always towards let's make some killer, you know, some killer vocals. So um, the arrangements always come within within the group. Yeah. I do miss Stephen and Ed. They had a, they had a lovely quality when their voices blended together. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, you know, definitely a hallmark of the group was was the way that they sounded together. Um, you know, it's interesting because they're, they're very different guys, you know, I guess like Lennon and McCartney as well. right? Yeah. Yeah. Very different personalities. But the way that their voices blended was definitely something special. Um, and you realize, too, that it, it can't just instantly be replicated. Um, I know that for a fact, because. I've done some damage to my vocal cords trying to cover some Stevens harmonies in the last 11 years. Yes. And uh, it's like, yeah, well, you have to do it correctly. And, you know, Steven has such a powerful voice that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, um, that mixed in with the more sort of uh, mellow tenor of, of Ed's was this great, you know, combo. And uh, yeah, definitely. It's one of those great, uh, Great things, great hallmark of our music. Well, and that's interesting. You know, when you say that, it's it's obvious. But I think back, and yeah, like a lot of those songs uh, that were Stephen's vocal performances, vocal presence was the. It was like, okay, Tyler, <laughs> clear your throat and step up. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, you here know. you go. Well, I I I think you know I I rarely sing any any of the songs that Stephen sang lead on. Uh, except I've done an alcohol a couple of times or over the years, or a couple of tours over the years. Um, but I think even covering the arrangements, so, you know, whether it's a three part or a four part, you know, covering his parts has been interesting. But since that, when I learned so much though, listening to my group sing, you know, because how the voices fit together and the types of parts. And so I really, you know, I really credit, um, you know, Jim and Kevin as well for, 
you know, uh, helping me along that in that direction and suggesting such great vocal parts. Other cool thing about the song, uh, that that three bar intro before the song proper starts uh, with the, you know, to lead a better life, uh, which they they also did on uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret earlier. But they uh, and that one guy said to me, he goes, the thing about Lennon and McCartney, they were great writers, but they were fans of of great writers uh and and you think back to the sort of cole porter era songs where they had those little preambles and you can see that they borrowed from that and and applied it to popular music well and those are the kinds of things you get to do in the studio like let's not forget that the beatles were an amazing live bat band like from the cavern days like a great little r&b show band like they, they played their asses off with energy they rocked you know and they could they could sing and all with you know they could do it all, but their their homage to those great songwriters and the great records that they like, which you know these carefully produced you know studio records of old, um, the a chance to do that on Revolver it really you know it really shines through. Yeah, and and the, just the thing that that always strikes me. We'll we'll move on to Yellow Submarine in a sec, but like it, it is. I think it's just a perfect song here, there, and everywhere. They, the song, the title of the song is sung only once. Only it's yeah. the, it's the payoff right at the end of the song when they sing the title. It, I, cool, that's uh, amazing, genius. Uh, so we move on to a song you mentioned it, uh, a boyhood song that you loved, "Yellow Submarine." Tell me about it. <laughs> Man, like what an evocative, what an evocative song. And the all, we, you know, Barenaked Ladies made a kids record called Snack Time and back in 2009. And we loved that record because it was so fun to make. All of our, all of our kids are on it. Um, it was very liberating to go in and just sing fun songs and, and particularly at that time in the, in the band's kind of, you know, history. Um, so Yellow Submarine, I think completely informed that record. Um, you know, everybody's involved, uh, the, you know, the, the sound effects, the drummer sings it, you know, so obviously that, you know, it's close to my heart. Um, it's such a, like when you listen to the recording of that song, it's so primitive sounding. It's like the guitar and the way it's pan, you know done in stereo. So there's guitar on one side with the drums. There's no real bass. There's not a lot of bass in it. It's like you know a low tune. I think John plays guitar on it and the and the drums. And then there's all this like sounds of bathtubs and <laughs> yeah sonar and you know yelling and Chad's nautical commands and stuff. So simple, but beautifully sung and, uh, you know, minimalist. And it's amazing. And and bizarrely released on a single with Eleanor Rigby. I mean, you could not have two more (laughs) different songs on the two sides of the record. I don't, I don't get it, man, (laughs) but it's the two sides of the Beatles. And it ultimately beautifully illustrated, you know, that single I had, that to me, like, wow, okay, I get it. This is, there's, there's, you know, 
there's two side, two of many sides on that on that 45. But Yellow Submarine, just unmitigated joy. I, I you know, it's a classic for all time. Tell me somebody who does. If you don't like that song, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess like the, the session on June 1st, 66, uh, that was the one devoted to superimposing sound effects onto the completed rhythm track, which was take four. Uh, I, I guess it was a night to be there. I've, I've got Lennon blew through a straw into a pan of water to create the bubbling sound. McCartney and Lennon talked through tin cans to create the sound of the captain's orders. Uh, Ringo, yeah, Ringo stepped outside the doors of the recording room and yelled like a sailor, acknowledging, you know, cut the cable, drop the cable. Uh, that was looped into the song afterwards. And then you had a couple of employees at the studio who they got in there uh, and they twirled chains in a tin bath to create the water sounds. And then you had the Jeff Emmerich found an old recording of a brass band. And tweak that a little bit so it couldn't be identified, yeah. and then that plays in. So yeah, what a night! What a night to have been there. Uh, I wonder if there's anyone who's ever actually been on a submarine, or like you know, is it people from the navy or sailors who who are stationed on submarines and go, none of those sounds ever happen on a submarine. But as far as I know, as a kid, and right now, that's what a submarine sounds like. Exactly, Probably doesn't precisely like that. I'm with you. That. <laughs> So last track on side one and uh, a bit of a mind blower at the time, a heavy song for the Beatles. Said she said it was the last track they started to work on during the sessions. I love this song. What about you? Oh yeah, it's, it's a great, amazing song. You know what? In a row, "Yellow Submarine" into "She Said She Said," "Good Day Sunshine," and "Your Bird Can Sing." Like all of those songs to me are just pop perfection. You know, not to mention you know going into "For No One," but um, she said she said. Obviously, you know, um, John's LSD experiences, um, you know, trying to familiar himself, familiarize himself with death, you know. Um, but I, I, never, I don't even really think of those songs, those lyrics or the meaning of the lyrics when I listen to that song because of its uh, incredible sonic palette, um, great backup vocals. Um, you know, great sort of sitar guitar vibe on it. Um, sing alongable, amazing. I I once saw uh, a really great hard rock band called Government Mule uh, play this song. A guy named Warren Warren Haynes, who was a member of the Allman Brothers, you know, touring band. Um, you know, 
incredible guitar slinging master. I saw his three piece band play this song once and it blew my mind because I realized there's so much in that song, so many elements that can be covered, even by a three piece band, you know, and it gave me another, a, a deeper appreciation for the song, but I, I love it too. I just think it's a, uh, it's a fabulous pop masterpiece and, you know, vibe, not too trippy, just trippy enough. What about, as a drummer, what about Ringo's drumming? I mean, he's, I've heard him say in interviews, he's particularly proud of his performance in this song. Um <laughs> I mean, I think it's an amazing drum track, but I don't play the drums. What, what do you think? I think all of Ringo's drumming is amazing. Like, he, he gets maligned a lot, but the guy just delivered every song. Like, I I guess it's hard now to imagine it being any different, you know? Be like, we you know, we heard what the Who were like with Kenny Jones on drums. You know, it was the straight, you know, good, solid rock drumming, but it wasn't the you know, crazed mayhem of Keith Moon, which was inspiring, but I'm sure it was a pain in the ass to deal with most of the time. Mm. Um, but in the Beatles, you never had that, except when Paul played drums, you know, <laughs> which <laughs> which apparently is quite a bit. Um, you know, uh, Ringo's playing on this whole album, to me, is, is a guy in step with his group. I feel like he said, you know, John and Paul are like, you know, John's like, I'm going to do acid and I'm going to freak out and I'm just going to do, I'm going to discover myself. And Paul was like, yeah, I'm going to discover myself too, but I'm going to write some of the best songs of all time. I'm just going to push myself. And George is like, I'm just going to keep writing. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep pushing boundaries. And I feel like Ringo is like, man, I'm so into this. Everything you guys are doing, I'm with it. And that, I feel like I relate to that because I have to be that guy in my band as well. When everyone comes to me with different disparate ideas and maybe there's that competition you know as as less of a writer than those guys and as as a you know as somebody whose personality is important to the group and like Ringo's was none of them can talk about you know their lives or the touring or the names of songs or the ideas related without mentioning Ringo because he was there he was he was their mate he was the guy who was like yes let's do this and he was the guy who kept him laughing, I think. Well, and he's famous for declaring that whether it was on John Lennon's first solo album, John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band, or whether it was for Revolver, he's famous for saying that everything I do is in support of the track, whatever it needs or doesn't need. So he's not uh, Carl Palmer. Uh, no, yeah. you know, uh, he's more shorts. He's not Neil Peart. He's not, you right. know, he's not like a showy drummer. Um, now, right. do you try to take that approach? Is that an instinctive approach? Is it? How do you get into that into that head? Because I mean, just like broadcasters, what I used to do, uh, hockey players, athletes, musicians, everybody's got an ego, and, and yeah. it seems to me to have that attitude, you really have to check it. 
Well, true, true. But I think my e- I think also you have to have an ego that supports others. You have to get satisfaction from others achieving what they want as well. You know, I, I always I think if you go back to the the Beatles in the Cavern Club and and this great live band, like he they wanted Ringo because he was the most exciting drummer. Like he had a swing. And that swing is evident across the Beatles' oeuvre. Like anything that swings, like think of Revolution or think of, uh, you know, um, Got to Get You Into My Life even, you know. Um, songs that are, are a bit swinging and that early, all those uh, like She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand, they all had a... Like it's almost like between like a shuffle and straight feel. And he nailed that all the time. And he was the guy they wanted to propel that band. And so, you know, as time went on, I think the songs, you know, obviously they got weirder and stranger and, and more varied and not just simple R&B songs. But Ringo was along for the ride, man. He, he seemed to be down with everything, like into it. And I feel like that on this song is a great example because there's some great fills and, and it moves along. But it has that, it has a swing to it. I'm not on the Ringo was a bad drummer train at all. I, I, I think, I think being in a group is so much more difficult than people realize. And that being a drummer in a group, it, especially the support role that you play is huge. And Ringo yeah, I, he's the man. I, it is so cool to hear that from a very good drummer in a very successful group say that, uh, because you certainly have the chops to be able to say that. And to those of you out there who say, nah, Ringo was overrated, I say, screw you. Tyler Stewart thinks otherwise. He knows his shit. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. On that note, I'm going to flip it over to side two. First track Good Day Sunshine. I like everything about Good Day Sunshine. Um, you know, I think any song that evokes the happiness of a beautiful, sunshiny day is worth it for me. Um, and there's lots of them. There's a lot of songs out there talking about the sun, you know, and even Here Comes the Sun by his bandmate, you know. Um, Sunny Days by Lighthouse. Hey, come on. There's a singing drummer for you. Um, Skip Prokop. But I think uh, Good Day Sunshine, you know, and again, McCartney, unabashed pop sensibility. And there are moments in the Beatles catalog uh, that that is a little too tough to take. Like, um, hello, goodbye. Like, no thanks. But good day, sunshine, on the money. Great singing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very much a nod to the Love and Spoonfuls daydream, says McCartney. The same traditional, almost trad jazz feel. One of our favorite records of theirs, Good Day Sunshine, was me trying to write something similar to Daydream. John and I wrote it together at his house in Kenwood, but it was basically mine, and he helped me with it. Yeah, uh, great piano playing at the end, too, or, or all the way through. I love the uh, doo-doo-doo-doo, just kind of loopy, kind of like um, 
almost ragtimey uh, feel of the piano. That was uh, a, that's George Martin playing that, uh, and yes. more more very speed. Oh man, you see the fifth Beatle again. Again, uh, gave it that kind of weird sound that uh, George Martin plays it. He played it slow and then sped it up, uh, which gives it that kind of weird sound. And then another song that I know you love because you referenced it earlier. The next cut, and your bird can sing. backup vocals too are amazing um if you're trying to learn how to sing harmony with somebody or what harmony vocals are put on this song because the way that uh mccartney lines lennon on this is absolutely perfect you tell me that you heard every sound there is and your bird can swing but you can't hear me Also, the, what a great guitar line. Like, this is like power pop, you know? this. I feel like this song informed everyone from, like, you know, the odds to, you know, the knack to the smithereens to XTC. You know, anyone who, who's got that melodic, great guitar lines and great singing, uh, this song completely informed them. It's memorable for that. It's an extended dual guitar melody played by Harrison and McCartney. Um, there was a version of the track they did with Harrison on his Rickenbacker 12 string, but they scrapped that um, and and just went with the, the traditional six string guitars. And what's some other notes I had about this? I, I thought this was interesting. Um, so there was a run of days, and this came during it, when they were recording Revolver, when they worked on a number of very sort of similar sounding Lennon songs. So they did Rain, uh, then they did Dr. Robert, and then they did And Your Bird Can Sing. So what I'm wondering is, is there a different vibe for the musician, in your case, the drummer, when you're working on tracks by different writers. So is a Kevin Hearn song approached differently than an Ed Robertson song or a Jim Cregan song or back in the day a Stephen Page song? That is a great question, Paul, because the answer um, is yes, but you try to fight against it. So what happens sometimes is that you get into a mindset about a certain writer. And so you feel like if you notice on uh, earlier Paranaked Ladies recordings, when Kevin, much like George Harrison, uh, has songs gradually introduced to the, to the world. So the first time a Kevin Hearn composition shows up is on Maroon in 2000, you know, our fifth album. And, uh, it's a song called Hidden Sun. And, you know, it's a song about him dealing with cancer and cancer treatment, leukemia treatment. Um, it's a very, it's a somber song. So I played a kind of a somber drum part and it fits the song. But I think what happens was for a number of years, I approached Kevin's songs in a similar way where it had to be different 
or that, that, you know, let's make this a different kind of vibe, which I don't think necessarily serves the band, you know? Um, I think I had to train myself to, to try to be, to try to shake my inherent um, palette for it, not shake it or just alter it. And so I always look to direction, look for direction from the songwriter. Um, and sometimes uh, it ends up being completely different than they intended, you know, because you try it and it doesn't work. And then, you, you know, eventually your own personality comes into it and then back and it's, it's a process. And I think with the Beatles, once again, I'll go back to Ringo being up for the challenge every time I feel like, and it couldn't have been easy for him because Paul's a great drummer and Paul's a great guitar player as well. And so often he would, you know, I know there was some rows in the studio. If you, if you use let it be, the let it be film as an example where, you know, George said, I'll play it any way you want to, man. Just tell me, you know, and I think Paul always had a great, a, a total like picture of exactly how things should go. And, um, you know, that, so if you're open to that, great. If you're a little more like, I'd like to just bring my vision to this song and don't get in the way of that, then that, that can cause some problems. You know, you have to find that happy medium between your own ego and, you know, what the vision of the songwriter. So I, I for one, I'm totally into suggestions from from my band and I get great ones. Ed Robertson is also a great drummer. You know, he's a guy who could, if he spent a month rehearsing just drums, he would fricking blow me away. The guys <laughs> like, seriously, man, the guy is fucking heavy drummer. And you know, he gets to do it on stage. We do a little swap at the end of the show where I go out and I sing and, and, and Ed plays drums and he's so good. It freaks me out how good he is on drums. And, you know, that's, and look at Kevin plays guitar, keys, everything. He's our soloist on every instrument. So, you know, it varies. It varies. Everyone has different, different talents, but I think, I think ultimately the idea of the band, the idea of the group supporting each other, pulling together is more important than any single vision within the group. And here's a quote I can't explain, uh, and he's not around to ask. Uh, John Lennon said of the song, uh, another of my throwaways, fancy paper around an empty box. Sometimes people have no idea what they're doing. Like, honestly, they have no perspective. But that's fine. If he felt like that, the rest of the world love it. Yeah. Yeah, I've I, just a bizarre quote that I that I unearthed when I was doing some research. Uh, if you listen to the anthology two CD, there's a, a track that breaks down where they're re- rehearsing this or whether it was a take. Uh, McCartney and Lennon just laughing hysterically. Um, oh yeah, I, I've heard that. It's just all laughter yeah. over the track. Yeah. What? <laughs> I don't know what happened. Somebody farted. I don't know. Who, yeah. who knows? Like, <laughs> pull my finger always gets a laugh. That's always always, gets, always. always works. <laughs> to uh, to the next cut and back to classic Paul McCartney structured songwriting, a beautifully crafted song for no one, written by McCartney. Uh, Lennon said of the song, one of my favorites of his. 
a nice piece of work. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. I've been married for 20 years and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you get to those points in a relationship where you, you can't speak to each other anymore or you can't communicate. And that could be after two months. It could be after two years or 20 years. Um, but I think the graphic illustration or the beautiful uh you know, illumination of that happening in this song is once again, a great documentary of, of emotion and what a beautiful, I love the, I love the French horn solo as well. That's pretty cool. Uh, by a guy named Alan Sybil and uh, McCartney said they like to use, you know, different instruments. Uh, we'd have an idea for some kind of new instrumentation, particularly for solos. For no one, I was interested in the French horn because it was an instrument I'd always loved from when I was a kid. It's a beautiful sound. So I went to George Martin and said, how can we go about this? And he said, well, let me get the finest. So in comes Alan Civil. And he comes in, and the interesting thing about the session is he sits down and he looks at the arrangement that George Martin had written out for him, and he said, hey, George, I think there's a mistake here. You've got a high F written down. And George and I said, yeah, and smiled back at him. He knew that we were what we were up to, and he played it. So the reason that was interesting is because it's officially off the scale on their instrument. But they can do it, but it's really difficult to do. And he, of course, did it. And it's a it's a classic solo. And it's wow, that that's amazing. It's like, oh, you're asking me to do something that I've never has never been in any score I've ever played or any piece I've ever done. But I I think I can probably do it. Uh, that yeah, that's yeah. what happens when you get the best. Yeah, <laughs> it, he was the best. Uh, he was also part of the orchestra orchestral crescendo in the song A Day in a Life on Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. And the poor guy, um, he died of liver and kidney failure in March of 1989. He was only 59 years old. And uh, that that's sad. That is it sad. It is sad. But, it, man, that, that playing lives on forever. And you think about that. Think about that horn, the sound of the French horn. What a beautiful sound. And, you know... Uh, I think of uh, Neil Young after the Gold Rush as well, where there's that beautiful French horn solo in it, and it, it, it seems to uh, the horn, the French horn, seems to find a place uh, in popular music. It, it's a, a beautiful song. McCartney recalls writing it uh, in the bathroom of a ski resort in the Swiss Alps. While he was on holidays with his then-girlfriend, Jane Asher, he said, I suspect it was about another argument, and the lyrics end enigmatically with a love that should have lasted years. So as, as you referred to earlier, that kind of, where did the love go? Uh, I've been married for coming up on 35 years, so uh, I, I hear Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Hey, and, and, and to <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you know, uh, sports broadcasters and musicians, not always uh, long lives on the marriages. So, Well, so. guys aren't home much, eh? So, you know, you gotta, you have to have a partner who understands uh, what, you know, you, that you get to go away and do what you love, that you have to go away. You know that I, 
one of the things that I always marvel at at my wife is that she never complains about me being away. Like, she'll, you know, there's there's been handoffs of screaming babies when I walk through the door that say, <laughs> your turn. Or, there, you know, there's been, but it's never, you should stop doing this. Or you, you know, I resent you for leaving. It's always, you know, it's more so it's, well, you're here now, please contribute, but it's never don't go away. And that's an amazing, amazing thing that our partners, I'm sure, have, you know, endured over the years. And in these times when we're locked down, uh, makes you even more grateful, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to go down that rabbit hole. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. yeah. All right. So next cut, uh, written by Lennon and McCartney, mainly Lennon. Uh, Lennon says, another of mine, mainly about drugs and pills. It was about myself. I was the one that carried all the pills on tour in the early days. Then later on, the roadies did it. We just kept them in our pockets loose just in case we needed them. Dr. Robert is the song. Being with a friend, I said you recall I'll, I'll relate this personally 1997 we are touring our asses off uh terry mcbride of network in vancouver is our new manager took over in uh late 95 but his plan was just every three months hit the same market again and keep growing it so the perpetual tour was on from approximately 95 till about 2004, we worked our asses off. And at one point in 97, everybody got sick. So we got, you know, run down and, you know, fever or whatever. Ed was losing his voice, you know, Stephen had diarrhea. <laughs> I, you know, I was totally run down and stuffed up. Jim was like sleep, you know, couldn't get enough sleep and, was, you know, crashing. So we had this guy come up. We called a doctor. And he showed up in a Ferrari in Philadelphia. The warehouse pulled up, showed up in a Ferrari with a beautiful woman in the car with him. And he pulled out a doctor's bag. He said, hey, how you doing, guys? I'm doctor. Can't remember his name. But I we just started calling him Dr. Robert. Because he gave us all B12 shots. Uh, you know, looked in our your throats, blah, 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 um, you know, recommended a bunch of things, get some painkillers, some anti-diarrheal, you know, stuff like that. Just essentially dispensed a bunch of pills and some advice. And we went on stage and played the show that night. All we could think about was the song, Dr. Robert. Well, 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 you're feeling fine all of a sudden. Uh, you know, so whether there was anything besides the B12 in the, in the shot, I don't know. But uh, I know that Dr. Robert was famous for mixing B12 with like amphetamines or something. Exactly. That'll make, make you feel better. I wonder if uh, Mr. Trump uh, had any of that action recently when he got a shot and was suddenly cured of coronavirus. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Dr. Robert, he's still around. Uh, but you nailed it, though, my friend. Barry Miles, in, in the book he did with McCartney many years from now, Dr. Robert, uh, a real doctor, a guy named Dr. Robert Freeman, a New York doctor known for dispensing vitamin B12 shots laced with amphetamines to wealthy clientele. 
From that, we click over to another George Harrison track, an unprecedented third George Harrison track on the record. I want to tell you, I love the fade into this song. Once again, the uh, influence of, uh, you know, both Motown and India in this tune, but uh, more akin to Taxman than it is to uh, a Love You Too. Um, so I think George getting three songs on this record is a statement, yeah, again, about... A, the quality of his work, and B, the we're going to do things differently. And, uh, you know, it's a it's about band health, band unity. You know, if you consider the songs that were left off this record, you know, Day Tripper, um, Paperback Writer. Rain. Maybe not Day Tripper. Paperback Writer, Rain, and is there something, is there another single that came out? I think, I think those are the three of the same same session maybe yeah it, it was uh during the uh while they were recording this album it was paperback writer backed with rain back with rain those well, are those the- are two those are two pretty st- you know stellar tracks and you know they're left off they're you know both Lennon McCartney songs and George gets three I, I to me that once again speaks volumes to George's evolution as a songwriter and the band's willingness to um, embrace that. And it's, it's great. Uh, He's been asked about the weird jarring chord at the end of every line that mirrors the disturbed feeling of the song. Uh, That sort of Uh, Harrison says that that's an E seventh with an F on top played in the piano. I'm really proud of that as I literally invented that chord. John later borrowed it on I Want You, She's So Heavy at the It's Driving Me Mad part. It's, a, it's an acid song. Uh, Harrison says, My brain and my consciousness and my awareness were pushed so far out. The only way I can begin, begin to describe it is like an astronaut on the moon or in a spaceship looking back down at the earth. I was looking back on earth from my awareness. That was his inspiration for the song. Uh, from that one, we get to the penultimate track on the album. And this one got to get you into my life. Real, to me, a real Motown feel to it. I love this song because it was on rock and roll music as well. That terrible capital compilation that unfortunately, you know, um, sounded terrible and all that stuff, but fortunately got my appetite absolutely whetted for the Beatles. Um, I love it too. It's one of those songs too that was a single again in 76, you know, 
10 years after it came out. I love that. That to me, it sounded like it always sounds contemporary because of those, those horns and, and, uh, the way that McCartney just sings his ass off too. A great, great guitar line though. I love that guitar part. And, uh, um, once again, uh, interesting. When I was a kid, I don't know if you did this, Paul, but you, you listen to Beatles on headphones and you take one headphone out or take it off and you'd hear the steps, the separation of the parts. And it was quite remarkable and dramatic back then because sometimes it was that fake stereo because it was recorded in mono and things like that. But I was I always loved hearing how quiet the drums were and how loud the, the guitar and the horns were. And um, really cool mix, interesting. The song itself, I love it. I, I, I think, I love the way at the end he reprises, I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I could find there. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with McCartney, the, what a killer singer too. Like, like just a, uh, I'm able to belt it out almost comically at times, just because he, he's such facility. He can just, sing like a bird amazing well and, and and he has so many different singing voices right he has this kind of rock and roll or oh darling is another song yeah. where he really and then he has the voice that you hear in yesterday or for no one right. or here there and everywhere uh, uh yeah i mean just um, amazing or helter skelter yeah that, you know later for the rock voice like that song still that still grabs me that tune, you know, that, uh, that was on rock and roll music too. But the, I think, um, you know, this song in particular, even the remake by Earth, Wind and Fire is cool. <laughs> I like that one as well. Speaking of horns, but the, um, the, the level of which this, it, this is a, almost a tin pan alley or a, a brill building feel of a song. Like, like Sinatra could have sung it, you know, I was alone. I took the ride, you know, like he could have crooned the shit out of this. Um, and I, I, so I love that. It's interesting to note that earlier on, you mentioned that, you know, the initial recording sessions started with the mind freak out of tomorrow never knows. And then continued with got to get you into my life. Yeah. Like what a, what a change now. I've also read that John thought that this song was about was written to to marijuana, like Paul singing to marijuana. I got to get you into my life. In fact, it is. Um, so going a quote that I found, uh, McCartney explains in an interview, "Got to get you into my life" was one I wrote when I'd been introduced to pot. So it's really a song about that. It's not to a person. Many lyrics from the song suggest this. I took a ride. I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see some other kind of mind there. What can I do? What can I be when I'm with you? I want to stay there. Uh, And Hmm. so on. It's actually an ode to pot, McCartney explained, like someone else might write an ode to chocolate or a good claret. (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh yes ode to chocolate so and and he uh Uh, yeah well there you go well got to get you into my life um it's interesting you know know, a career marijuana user or a known marijuana user once arrested for it obviously paul mccartney um it it, you take inspiration wherever you can get it and 
the good songwriter can write a, a song about anything and it can resonate with you. And obviously the great songwriters, the genius songwriters like Paul McCartney, John Lennon, uh, George Harrison, all had that ability to take you on the ride with them, whatever they were talking about. And uh, I, I still love, this is one of my favorite Beatles songs, God to get you in my life. I, I love it. Uh, the recording was cool. Uh, they wanted that that sound. So McCartney asked a couple of uh, members from Georgie Fame's group, the Blue Flames, uh, who they knew from the London club scene. Uh, Eddie Thornton, Peter Coe performed along with uh, other freelance jazz musicians, three trumpets, two tenor saxes. And during the session, Paul and George Martin were in charge. Nothing written down, but McCartney, I guess, sat at the piano and showed us what he wanted and we played with the rhythm track in our headphones and they tried to get the feel and then Lennon who wasn't playing on it but was sitting up in the control room came running out and stuck his thumb up and shouted got it perfect when they were going through things so it was a real despite the fact he didn't have much to do with writing the song or playing on it he was still there and supporting the song which is yeah, kind of yeah, cool. which which you always want in a group. You want the group to be around for for the good stuff like that. Um, that is very very interesting. That once again, I, it shows that McCartney knows exactly what he wants, yeah, and uh, or he knew exactly what he wanted. And I love too that they uh, that they got their buddies, you know, from they got a brass section from uh, another you know contemporary popular band at the time it's pretty cool so to the last cut on the album tomorrow never knows and uh, it is a completely acid drenched song here's a, a quick bit of backstory april 1st 1966 john lennon paul mccartney go to indica books and gallery which had opened in march 66 on mason's yard in london lennon was looking for a copy of uh, the portable nietzsche as you do uh but emerged with something quite different he bought a copy of the psychedelic experience a manual based on the tibetan book of the dead by timothy leary richard alpert and ralph metzner at the beginning of the book's introduction, he found a line which would be adapted for Tomorrow Never Knows. When in doubt, relax, turn off your mind, and float downstream. To our earlier conversation, Tyler, put yourself back in 1966, playing this for the first time. The album they've released after Rubber Soul, which had a bit of experimentation on it, but you come to this, the last track. It must have just been mind-blowing. could say that this song started a movement, the psychedelic movement in some ways. Um, it's interesting that the Beatles, uh, well, being part of the 60s uh, and, you know, generally being so busy that they had no time to partake in a lot of this stuff. And then when they decide to 
settle down, quote unquote, when you decide to stop traveling all over the place and concentrate almost solely on their personal life and their music, that they start defining genres or they start um, yeah, defining them, becoming part of things that existed or, or were in their infancy and advancing them and bringing them to the world. So this song, yeah, you hear it. You would call it a watershed moment in, in your understanding of where things are headed or what it might be like to take drugs if you're Mr. Straight who didn't do anything like that. Oh, this is what it must be like. And uh, yeah, I totally, totally groundbreaking, incredible song. It was originally called Mark One. Lennon wanted to call it The Void, but on the tape box from the session, it was written Mark One. The eventual title he copped from a Ringoism uh, that Lennon recalled from a 1964 interview that the Beatles had done with the BBC's David Coleman. Uh, speaking of Ringo, as a drummer, Tyler, uh, you know the slack-tuned tom-toms, damped, compressed, recorded, massive echo... Where does this stand in your appreciation of great drum performances? Well, I love that it has a certain um, skip beat feel that he'd also like think about a uh, ticket to ride, which is same vibe, like, uh, you know, on the upbeats of the bar at the end, on the ends, really cool idea um simple idea but not utilized that much and i think in this case is dogged um adherence to the beat just keeping it propelling it forward um it's really cool it's not you know i don't think it's the most complex drum performance it's certainly one of the most inspired and i think with that beat playing you, you could accomplish a lot because it just keeps you going you know it's danceable it's everything it's just it pro, it's a propulsive beat now i know that um i love that they did things like i i feel like almost george martin and jeff emmerich you know these veteran older than the beatles you know veteran producers and, and engineers who wanted they wanted to try shit you know, they they they're they want to do stuff. They're progressive guys. And Martin, you know, I, I read, too, that he was freed from his contract with EMI because essentially he just got paid a, a flat rate. He didn't get any royalties or anything. Meanwhile, these guys are selling millions of records and whatever. So he got out of that. And, and I love that he was able to join the Beatles on that. I, I can be as interested in this. And this is cool. And I'm pushing the boundaries. I've, I've produced, he's produced everything from comedy to the orchestras, to brass bands, to pop groups. And now here he is with these dudes and an engineer willing to just do whatever it takes to push the boundaries and digging it and loving it, you know, starting at midnight yeah. Well, and, um, and Martin was quite a bit older than them. He was a bit of a father figure. Jeff Emmerich was around the same age, which was why it was a good fit. Because, But, uh, I mean, to your point, Lennon 
tells George Martin that he wanted to sound like a hundred chanting Tibetan monks. That's how he wanted the track to sound, which left Martin the difficult task of trying to find the effect by using the basic equipment they had. So the effect was achieved by using a Leslie speaker. When the concept was explained to Lennon, he inquired if the same effect could be achieved by hanging him upside down on a rope and spinning him around the microphone while he sang into it. So they didn't do that, but Emmerich broke into basically one of the the cabinets and then re-recorded the vocal to have it come out through the Leslie speaker, which gives it that sort of whirling sound. And then the also this was the first time the Beatles had used artificial double tracking because Lennon hated tracking his own vocals. So he sang it. Once it was slightly delayed and it sounded like a double track. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. Lay down all thoughts, surrender to the voice. It is shining. It's all of these innovations, to your point, this is George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, and they're both, yeah, they're both into it. And they're both straight. The acid head says, hang me upside down and spin me around a microphone. <laughs> and the straight, technically uh, knowledgeable guys go, yeah, we can do that without having you harm yourself. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad they were around, because otherwise... Lennon would have been hanging from the ceiling on by his by his ankles. Um, anyway, uh, that's that. Yeah, so great, so great. They using a like even you know those ideas now they're they're common in studios or there's an you know there's an app or a plugin that you can do that with. Um, but the Leslie, all these physical manifestations of uh, you know electronic tricks, whether it's tape loops or whether it's you know hacking into the electronics of a Leslie and putting the vocals through that. Amazing. And they, that, you know, innovations that not only were the band innovating with their songs and the styles and bringing different, you know, elements of cultural music into their, you know, to their thing and, and, and adding elements of classical and they're innovating on that department. Technically, you know, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich are innovating how you make records, changing how pop music records are made and and all the loops too and it's interesting there you know there are five or six different tape loops that are audible in the finished version of the song and it was as mccartney explained it it was it was a performance when you were doing the mix there were guys holding pencils near cab stands to keep the tape uh not too slack so it would play through the machine and he would push the faders up and down on the board and you you would never they they did it a number of times until they got the sound they wanted but you were never going to get the same sound twice because it was all random tape loops i mean it's yeah it's amazing it's incredible it's cool stuff uh so that is the album i'll just ask you quickly about i mean the cover art 
Um, it was the second Beatles album after Rubber Soul not to feature the group's name in the cover. The artwork famously done by their old Hamburg buddy, uh, Klaus Vormann, a musician and artist who the Beatles knew from Hamburg. Uh, pen drawings and a collage of sections that Robert, uh, photos Robert Whitaker had taken, newspaper clippings and so on. Um, what is your favorite Bare Naked Ladies cover? Is it, it, I'll give you mine mm-hmm. while you collect yeah, okay. your... Okay, so I love Gordon with the iconic rubber ball. Anybody in Canada, that means something to that that ball. Um, I like the weirdness of Maybe You Should Drive with the, the sort of creepy pantomime of the, the guy in the tricycle and the creepy-looking person standing behind. I, the, and I love... Maybe my favorite is Stunt uh, with that collage on the looks like a cutout collage in the front. What about you? Well, those are th- those are three good ones. Uh, I, I'm going to say, um, you know, I love I love the one that a, a Toronto art collective did for us. They're called Team Macho, and that's for our Bare Naked Ladies Are Me and Bare Naked Ladies Are Men uh, album covers because it's a great once again using collage. Um, an incredible uh, um, kind of mishmash of different styles, and that, that's the thing with they were like a rock, a rock group, like a super group of artists as well. So to have them involved on our on our records was was a really something special. Um, you know, I think uh, when you think about Beatles album covers too, you know they were they went from being on the on the cover a lot because they're you know, essentially teen idols. And, uh, you know, they were very popular and their, their image was everything. And then this one, you know, collage of their faces, etc. But then when you get into the, like the white album, for instance, where there's just nothing there. I, I love that that came after Sergeant Pepper, which was this colorful, crazy, you know, pastiche thing. Um, they always seem to have, the right cover for the music inside of the, uh, of the album and revolver with this, with its collage mixed with line, line drawings mixed with photographs. Uh, what a great way to bring all the disparate elements of this record together visually and, you know, presented to the world, like this is going to be something different mm-hmm. and, Right from the cover on down, it sure was. Yep, and it was, uh, and that's a great point by you. I mean, they they went from Revolver, which was a really cool, unusual cover, Pepper, which was unprecedented at the time, uh, with the lyrics printed on the back and so on, and then the next one they come out with is, you know what, we're just going to put our names on it, nothing else. (laughs) And and you can't really see it. Yeah. In the first pressing, or the first albums where it's embossed in the sort of the... uh, Yep. Invisible embossing. Amazing. Uh, uh, Grammy Award for the Best Album Cover Graphic Arts in 1967 for Klaus Vorman when he did that. And uh, other music in the charts, just to give you an idea of what they were out against when the album was released. Albums, you had uh, big, big seller, biggest seller of the year, Sound of Music Soundtrack. Uh, Pet Sounds, Blonde on Blonde by Dylan. And Johnny Mail and Eric Clapton with Blues Breakers. So that was wow. in the charts. And then singles, you had uh, The Trogs and A Girl Like You, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, The Who, I'm a Boy, 
and the Supremes, You Can't Hurry, Love, other things that were out at the time. Uh, so, Tyler, it's been, uh, it's been a while. We've talked a lot about this album. What, yeah. uh, what do you take away? What do you take away, your final sort of view on the Beatles and Revolver? Well, Paul, in some respects, I think what you're doing is uh, with your, you know, the Walruses Paul podcast is, it's like, hey, what great old guys talking about old music. Awesome. I'm over the age, if I'm under the age of, you know, 30, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. But on, on the other hand, who cares? Uh, and if you are under the age of 30 and you're checking this out, uh, man, there's so much to discover with the Beatles. If you haven't already, if you haven't played Beatles rock band and gone, Hey, these songs are great. You know, back then, even rock band now was an old reference, but if somehow what you're doing here, Paul, what we're, we're doing, we're talking about the Beatles and man, you could talk endlessly about the Beatles. I go down these holes of months or weeks of obsessing about it, then putting it away and going, enough already. There's a famous story in Bare Naked Ladies where Kevin Hearn, also an enormous Beatles fan, perhaps the biggest Beatles fan in the group, he was down a jag on the bus, probably about 1996 or seven. Come on the tour bus, he'd be watching Beatles. Come on the tour bus, he'd play, he'd playing in the dressing room, playing it before shows, listening to it on his headphones. And I walked on one day and I said to him, Kevin, man, come on, man, no more Beatles. And he just sort of quietly looked up at me and said, okay, Ty, no more hockey. <laughs> and I got it because I like to talk about hockey and I love hockey and I talk about it a lot and I watch it and I played it and I have friends who are hockey players, as you know, Paul. So... It was a, a, it was the beautiful example of how we can obsess over wonderful things, but at some time you have to stop and take a step back and go, okay, wait a minute, and then you have to go, ah, oh, who cares? We're going for it. I understood exactly what Kevin was saying, and now I'm in the midst of doing all of that as well. And because of your invitation for the podcast, I also have a Beatles pinball machine. That that Ed got Ed's a pinball fan, and he got me a Beatles pinball machine. So I listen to all kinds of Beatles music all the time, and uh, so it's it's part of it's part of our lives. It's a huge part of our lives, and talking about it, it's so easy and it's so incredible, and it's nice. It's nice to be in awe, you know. It really is nice to be in awe, you know. In my business. We see a lot. We do a lot. You know, there's a, the whole issue of staying alive in the music business, et cetera. And some of that can get pretty exhausting. But when you can go back to the roots, to the things that inspired you, to the things that inspire you to keep going, that's a beautiful thing. So I thank you for uh, inviting me along to talk about this great record and this great band. Tyler, it has been my pleasure, and I can't thank you enough. And, uh, yeah, something else we do have in common, and, and, and I think I have a thread to tie them together. Uh, I, too, love talking about hockey. Uh, most of my professional career, I was lucky enough to be a hockey play-by-play -play announcer, and I miss it terribly, not doing it anymore. Uh, but the great, and the great thing about talking about hockey or the Beatles 
they both bring great joy to your life. And for that, you have to be grateful. Amen, brother. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, just a reminder that Tyler and the Bare Naked Ladies are going to attempt to tour in 2021. They have dates scheduled. Tickets are on sale. For more information, go to the website BareNakedLadies.com. That is BareNakedLadies.com. You can see the itinerary. They have North American dates scheduled as well as a short UK tour, including a show at the Royal Albert Hall. Tickets are available. Uh, and, uh, man, my fingers are crossed that that all comes together. It has just been too long since we have had the joy of uh, sitting and listening to live music so let's keep our fingers crossed if you would like to follow tyler on twitter you can find him at the handle baldy67 if you would like to follow me and the show you can find me on twitter and instagram at the underscore romycast the underscore romycast that is it for this show be sure to keep your eyes peeled for our next show My guest will be singer-songwriter Jerry Legere, who has been compared favorably by some critics to a young John Lennon. That's next time on The Walrus with Paul. Take care. Stay safe. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Oh, it's really good. Hey, size, yeah. Can we just have a little less guitar in here, Father? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both going to do what he wanted to do. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>